Good afternoon. This is New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Maya Wollner, your podcast host. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Stefanos Garlanos about his new co-authored book with Todd Myers, The Human Body in the Age of Catastrophe, Brittleness, Integration, Science, and the Great War, published in 2018 by the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Garolanos is professor of history at New York University. His research interests include the history of science and medicine, historical epistemology, and the conceptual history of 19th through 21st century Western Europe. His publications include An Atheism That Is Not Humanist Emerges in French Thought, published in 2010 by Stanford University Press, and Transparency in Postwar France, A Critical History of the Present, also from Stanford University Press in 2017. His co-author, Dr. Todd Myers, is Associate Professor of Anthropology at NYU Shanghai. His research moves between the social study and history of medicine, clinical ethnography, and anthropological approaches to the study of visual culture. Dr. Myers is author of a number of works, including Chronique de la Maladie Chronique, published by Presse Universitaire de France in 2017, and with Richard Backstrom, Violence's Fabled Experiment, published by August Verlag in 2018. Good afternoon, Stefanos. It's a pleasure to have you on New Books in Science. Good afternoon, Maya, and thank you so much for interviewing me for this. So let me start by asking you, what inspired and motivated you and Todd to write this book? Um, we started, Todd and I were in graduate school together and were involved in two translations of Georges Conguilhem's works um, on, you know, on biomedicine, on the history of biological concepts. And the more that we worked together, the more we started thinking that we wanted to look around the figures that Conguilhem was interested in and see how it is that their work fit together, particularly um, neuropsychiatrist Kurt Goldstein and then the physiologist uh, Walter Cannon. Goldstein cared about patients, uh, about brain injury patients after World War I and developed a very particular method of, of attending to each one of them individually. And Walter Cannon, we knew because of his project on uh, homeostasis, on defining homeostasis. And later, because of a rather famous and peculiar and fun essay called Voodoo Death that he published at the end of his life in uh, American Anthropologist. And um, so the way that this came together in part was that we started writing together about Goldstein, whose archive was conveniently located at Columbia, um, Columbia University, so that for once I didn't actually have to go to Europe to do archival research. And the more that we worked on this, the more... Uh, we started getting attached to the subject and to trying to understand how and why it is that new understandings of bodily collapse became important around and after World War I. In one sense, the answer is obvious. It's because of World War I. But in a different sense, it wasn't obvious why bodies should be both highly individualized, as Goldstein and Cannon both insisted, and at the same time, so prone to different kinds of collapse. Uh, as as the as as they and many others of their generations so gradually we started doing a lot more uh, research from Cleveland to London uh, and decided that this was was worth pursuing that this ambiguity about how the body becomes one not an ambiguity how this this idea of how the body becomes much more a single whole after World War One and how at the same time it needs to be engaged for it's different ways of collapsing once it's aggressed from the outside uh, and how it sometimes helps into this collapse. That became 
our priority. Um, I think and I've- how would you, how would you, so yes, that's, that's a perfect, that's a perfect answer. I, I wanted to sort of segue and ask you also about your methodology with, which I think is, is quite unique and also very productive uh, in your investigation. Um, that's very kind. I mean, I think from my perspective, let's say from the perspective of a historian of concepts, and I don't know that I always acted as that, um, I was very interested in looking at concepts that had a, a physical reality on the one hand, and hence were not simply, you know, ideas that you could describe as being in the clouds. And at the same time, not only had a physical reality, but were interpreted in vastly different terms. So, um, for in the book, for example, we track the way in which uh, fluids in the body, and in particular hormones, were conceived as regulating and integrating the body, and that this happened over and over and over, not just on one or other um, random occasion. So that in 1905, when you first get a sense of bodily secretions as being particularly significant, and hormones are named, they're still described effectively as, as attendant concepts to the way in which the major organs or the major bodily systems operate. And then by 1914 already, you have them being described as key regulators, akin to the way in which Charles Sherrington famously will speak of the nervous system as self-integrating. And then after the war, hormones are only part of a self-regulating and highly integrated system that the body is. So what I was most interested in is that, A, you have a kind of history of how this operates at the conceptual level and in systems of thought that change over and over. But B, these have a very tangible reality to them uh, Mm -hmm. in that they have to do both with the way in which scientists work in the lab and at the same time with the way in which they uh, conceptualize each patient and try to understand what it is that happens with each individual patient. So in the introduction, you write individuality as a concept was up for grabs. And I wanted to ask you, why then physiology? So how how does physiology allow you a unique perspective on this history of individuality? And maybe you can also give our listeners a picture of what physiology looked like circa 1900, so that when we talk about the war and the post-war, we can truly understand the extent of the transformations we'll get to in greater detail as the interview progresses. Okay, so let's let's try and do physiology first, and then I think the sense of individuality and why physiology will become uh, a little clearer. Um, what, so physiology is traditionally understood as having pursued a project akin to that of anatomy or akin to that of describing the body in the most complex fashion possible. Uh, but the complexity... Uh, it can be understood in very different ways. Around 1900, it's a kind of listing of how the organs work and how they build up the organism from below. Part of the reason for this is is basically materialistic or um, mechanistic, the m- meaning that for physiologists around 1900, the key effort to avoid is some suggestion that they're being romantic holists who are fantasizing the, the entire operation of the body. Um, That's one angle. The second one is that since Claude Bernard in the 1860s, physiologists are becoming increasingly experimental in the projects that they are pursuing. And physiology is trying to become a science prior to and foundational for other key uh, sciences like neurology or like pathology. 
so those are two uh, two uh, little elements. What really changes is that in examining parts, they start examining relations between parts and influencing mechanisms of influence. So uh, gradually you get to moments around 1902, 1904, where you have mechanisms of uh, secretion suggesting that you can have distance effects, say, from the kidneys to you know other parts of the body um, through the, the the respiratory system or to uh, the brain and so on. So part of the, the the question that suddenly becomes interesting is how and why are all organisms both self-regulating or regulated by these secretions across the different bodily systems, circulatory, respiratory, and so on? And at the same time, why is it that this can happen, this can have different effects, or what kind of different effects can it have on our lives? Uh, in what ways does it change the our behaviors at given moments in time or define that behavior at given moments in time? Uh, physiology, when I said that it's more experimental, by 1900, uh, physiologists are beginning to use x-rays. They're beginning to uh, be able to, you know, do kind of in vivo work, not not necessarily... Uh, look merely at the way that uh, organs can be retroactively seen to operate. Now, the effect of looking at physiology is that you get a domain in which individuality is both a goal and a problem. You would like to be able to explain how an individual operates under a given circumstance or how they respond to external or internal stimuli in a given circumstance. But at the same time, what you're working with around 1900 is you're working upwards from animals and at the same time, that is to say, uh, if you can't experiment on humans for most things, you experiment on higher or lower animals and you try to extrapolate upward. And the second thing is the if the bodies are basically morphologically the same, then the question suddenly becomes, so how is it that you can possibly have an individual? Now, the way that this plays out and that gets interesting, the, this idea that individuality is up for grabs, which for me is much more interesting than, you know, the sort of long manuals on physiology that we uh, had to read from the period, of which there are, you know, arrays mm-hmm. and arrays of, of, of handbooks, manuals, and teaching instruments. So um, the way that this becomes interesting is that this doesn't quite work with classical liberal ideas, and it doesn't quite work with... Um, you know, it doesn't quite work with the obvious political positions that you would have in hand. That is to say, physiologists may be, you know, good Edwardian liberals who gradually become more, move to the left. Uh, Some of them become socialists. But at the same time, it's not obvious what this liberalism would mean. In part because they, they see the body itself as having agency and not the individual who speaks for it. So there, you know, just as uh, Freud moves at that moment to the unconscious, but does not quite uh, allow for the unconscious to be seen as as highly individualized. Uh, so the physiologists are moving to an understanding of the the let's say a physical unconscious or the way that the body itself operates, without at the same time allowing for that body to uh, without allowing the individual who. I don't know how to put it, you know, who inhabits that body or who's mm-hmm. a, who who is embodied in that body uh, to be uh, speaking for it. Uh, 
So on the one hand, the voice of the speaker loses its value. Uh, and at the same time, it's as though not organs, but regulatory systems suddenly become active and speak for him or her. Yeah, I definitely want to get more into that later uh, when we reach Canon's work, um, maybe chapter six. But before we, we get into more details about uh, subjectivity, um, I want to ask you about wound shock. So wound shock and its status as a functional disease during World War One is the central object of your study in chapter two. And I was wondering how the war and in particular wound shock challenged these pre-existing notions about the body. And maybe actually you could also sort of tell us or define what functional disorder is so that we're all on the same page. Right. So functional disorders uh, are defined around 1900 as disorders where the lesion either doesn't exist or is, is, is tertiary to the holistic quality in which the, the disease affects the organism. Um, a functional disease does not simply affect one part of the body, but it affects the whole body. Now, functional diseases are the key problem in the early stages of World War I, most famously sepsis, uh, which is dealt with gradually through antiseptic solutions. Note that sepsis cannot be treated uh, at that point, and that Antiseptic solutions are aimed at, at stopping the onset of it. Now, wound check was, was interesting because it affected very different patients. It affected very different soldiers, and it affected them in ways that could not be predicted. That is to say, you could have a soldier who's quite gravely wounded but does not suffer from shock. Um, you know, it's what we'll refer to as he went into shock or she went into shock will be precisely what they what the surgeons at the front and physiologists back in, in London are looking at. Uh, it has a highly complex uh, symptomatic picture, and it distinctly moves away from the sense that the particular injury is important. Somebody might have, they report over and over, minor injuries to their body and major effects on uh, their capacity to survive, with major effects on their capacity to survive. And so what Wunchok does is it completely alters the sense of how regulation operates, you know, in situ at the moment of shock, at this liminal moment where the body is injured. Because what the body basically does is it tries to hide blood away from seeping out at the site of injury. And in so doing, it moves into a vicious cycle where uh, it hides the it hides blood away in the capillaries. It appears to the the temperature being already quite low. It loses quite some blood pressure. Blood pressure gets worse. Body temperature gets worse. The the the, the blood becomes anaerobic and uh, gradually ever more toxic. And the organism, in trying to save itself, basically begins to uh, to kill itself off. And trying to save itself from losing blood, begins to die of the the, the protective mechanism. Let's say. But the other side of this was that it suddenly gave an idea of how all of these regulatory systems function uh, in, in rapid speed. And it did so across a very large number of patients so that you could have both the comparative effect. Uh, you, you, could, you could see how differently individual patients uh, react, some of whom are gravely wounded but survive and others will just very readily um, die. But at the same time, it kind of individualized the patient because of its unpredictability. 
uh, mm-hmm. that I just cited. So all of the major physiological teams working around 1900 in some of the more famous sites, whether Paris, London, uh, University College London, or for example at Harvard or at uh, in, in, in Cleveland, uh, are trying to figure out how to deal with shock. And their ideas as to how shock operates have very much to do with the way in which they see the body as integrated. And they change the idea that the body is integrated because over millennia of evolution, we have integrated, the body has become more adaptable and has become capable of handling ever more uh, minute uh, intrusions or, or stimuli from the outside to an idea that the body is integrated precisely to avert collapse and yet sometimes contributes to that collapse. It's not that they lose their evolutionism. It just becomes totally secondary as a, as a point of importance. So I, w- I was really interested by your discussion of the time and space of, of wound shock. And I was wondering if you could describe for our listeners the temporalities that were associated with wound shock in, in particular, and also to sort of talk about secondary shock uh, and why that uh, secondary shock was so difficult for practitioners and theorists to deal with during the war. Yes. So the, the, the idea in, in, in rough terms is that you can have shock that whose onset is immediate. And in that case, most of the time you can't really do very much, but you can have a somewhat more gradual. Uh, so let's say an immediate shock is, is like an immediate functional collapse of the organism. But the type of shock I was describing before will be called secondary. And there it is tricky and interesting in part because there are many ways in which the organism should be able to escape, but doesn't automatically do so. And there are many ways in which the physician ought to be able to care for the patient, but cannot automatically do so. Sometimes uh, sometimes surgeons will, so to speak, attempt to remove a fragment, thereby causing additional shock and making it, making things much worse. So that they didn't even necessarily want to take care of uh, want to. It's not that they didn't want to take care of a patient. Uh, they didn't necessarily want to fall to the mistake of introducing intervention into a body that was already troubled. So the, the temporality that becomes, I think, very interesting is that they suddenly have a body that's operating under rules that is not that are not necessarily pre-given or that are not necessarily easy to anticipate mm-hmm. or to regulate. So that this individual temporality of the body, which is predictable in its very vague terms, but not predictable in any sense of what is going to happen, uh, changes the way in which you see the patient as uh, an object of care and as an object of healing. That was the part that I that that we were perhaps most interested in. That suddenly these patients all become different kinds of case studies, and mm-hmm. you have to either promise to either pursue them statistically, which isn't a very good uh, way to proceed either, because this person on the surgical table cannot necessarily be treated statistically, if you will, or you have to come up with new ways of, of care and um, new ways of care. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned case study, which is sort of the perfect, uh, perfect 
segue into my next question, which is precisely about about that. Um, In chapter three, you write that the case study is unstable and fundamentally paradoxical in form. And so I wanted to know if you could expand on this idea for our listeners and sort of unpack uh, chapter three. Okay, so we, let's see. So there, there are growing numbers of, of studies of case studies or case histories uh, in the last few years. And what we were most interested in is the different ways in which patients were suddenly handled around the time of the war and especially after. In some cases in the war, case studies, uh, cases would simply be divided administratively. And in other cases, you would have the attempt to construct sort of giant compendia of cases in order to be able to categorize them and organize them. And and yet still others. So the first one, for example, sorry to go back to this, um, administrative divisions of cases would simply say, do we have a lesion or do we not have a lesion, as uh, as Frederick Myers would um, argue. Second, you had compendia like uh, Ernest uh, Elmer Southard's uh, compendium, which had some 900 cases and tried to come up with new categorizations. And the third moment is someone like Kurt Goldstein, for whom cases were so significant that you did not need to actually study a total population. You had to look at the individual patient there. And so you suddenly get this novel attention to, again, I guess, individual patients, but not necessarily as patients, as exemplars of a condition that is itself not easy to describe. Um, To put this in different terms, it's a very different thing to be looking for physiological laws than it is to be trying to figure out how it is that this patient here whose condition I'm not entirely sure suddenly seems to be operating relatively differently than everybody else. And that was the key part that we engage with in this chapter. How is it that different physicians, surgeons, and laboratory workers were trying to handle the sudden proliferation of quite different and in some ways very troubling or troubled cases in the wartime period, what they called no man's land conditions. And how is it that that proliferation can both be superimposed on a longer history of the case study, but also differentiated from it? It's differentiated from it, at least to the extent that suddenly you have both huge numbers and an attempt to understand individuals within these. And yet, of course, you can't simply call a case an exemplar because then you 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 know what your your criterion for all other cases is. So you're operating with a sudden plurality of possible individual situations, some of which you you can anticipate or some of which you can figure out. Others seem to still be, to repeat that 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 phrase, no man's land conditions or no man's land cases, which were all the more troubling for the um, physicians and physiologists involved, and which largely obliged them all all the more so than Wunschok to structure the patient as effectively an individual, as somebody who has whose individuality has to be factored in. That's really fascinating. 
So I wanted to know, who was René Lariche, and why is his work, The Surgery of Pain, relevant for your analysis and, and these discussions? I find Lariche really fascinating. Um, Lariche is a surgeon who writes about uh, mostly knee injuries or uh, femur injuries during World War I, and then gradually, uh, while he works, uh, he lives and works mostly in Lyon, and over the course of the interwar period, begins to work on patients on whom he has already carried out surgery or someone else has already uh, carried out surgery who seem to have pain from leftover from that surgery. And so it's not quite phantom limb, uh, if you will, but it's not altogether that, that different as a way of, of thinking this. And who starts trying to conceptualize what he calls a surgery of pain. In the book on a surgery of pain, it's a kind of amazing, it's an amazing book because you you watch him act as though he has discovered pain itself, as though other physicians would always say, well, you know, whatever, this is just kind of a leftover. Whereas for him, pain becomes a way into studying suffering and again, a way into trying to figure out what his own purpose as a physician is. Um, in World War II, he was... Uh, he would become a Vichy official, and I'm not entirely sure of how significant this is in the story. I've had some difficulty uh, finding enough enough existing detail, if you will. Uh, he becomes a Vichy official as the head of a college of surgeons, or the respective of the college of surgeons in France. But it's not evident whether that is because of his eminence and as a, as a kind of overarching figure, or if he's a straight-up collaborator in some way. Conguilhem writes about him in The Normal and the Pathological because of his famous uh, expression that health is uh, life lived in the silence of the organs, whereas disease is what intrudes upon our lives and what makes us suffer. That expression would become uh, a key, you know, it would become an exemplar of how people uh, like Conguilhem would theorize health and illness. Health is this sort of calm seemingly normative situation, which may itself be an illusion, right? Because silence of the organs doesn't mean you don't have something. And at the same time, how suffering needs to be, how suffering and pathology of suffering needs to be the priority for the attending physician or for the um, whomever is engaged. Uh, so that it's no longer a matter of physiology, but a matter of, you know, much more direct care, sometimes with intervention, sometimes without. So how did Henry Head and Kurt Goldstein conceptualize the ruin of the self and its possibility for reintegration or wholeness after traumatic injury? Okay, so that's, a, that's some of the more difficult stuff in the, in the book. Um, Goldstein and Head, we describe them as twins separated at birth, uh, the one, though they're very different uh, institutionally and in some respects as intellectuals. Um, Goldstein as I said before, studies brain injury patients in Frankfurt. Henry Head, who has studied in Germany as part of his physiological studies in the, in the uh, late eight, in the 1890s, has uh, a rather different trajectory. He's famous for studies of his radial nerve, uh, where he uh, had surgery performed in it to cut it, uh, and then watched it regenerate over a period of time and carried out uh, extensive experiments with WHR Rivers on his arm and in order to understand what a regeneration of a nerve is. He and Goldstein both in the war 
become flummoxed at the idea that they have patients who do not look like aphasic patients. Uh, they have brain injury patients who have no connection to the traditional ways of understanding either the effects of a lesion or, let's say, the cumulative or chiastic, to use a, an earlier example, effects of brain injury. And so they start paying a lot more attention, one, to particular cases, to extraordinary extremes, sometimes hundreds of pages on a particular uh, patient, and at the same time, to the way in which the patient does and does not compensate for the injury. That's the part that gets very cool. So for Head and Goldstein, what is more important than the injury itself or the lesion in the brain uh, is the way in which the rest of the brain tries to make up for it. And they construct these elaborate systems, both in neurological terms and, at least in Goldstein's sense, uh, for uh, in, in full physiological terms, for the whole organism, as ways of understanding how the body responds to external aggression and how sometimes it puts itself at the edge of catastrophe, if you will, but how at other times it, it functions quite differently. Um, let me revise that. Uh, how it, it at times operates at the edge of catastrophe, but how, for the most part, it tries to pull itself back and construct a new kind of self to develop a new kind of whole so that brain injury does not itself mark the end of a self, but rather leaves the self struggling at, in, in great detail and length to come up with some wholeness. Now, this again puts the neurologist and the neuropsychiatrist in a very tricky position. You don't simply discount this patient on the one hand, uh, you don't leave them aside, and at the same time, you don't exactly know what to do with them. Um, that is to say, you have to work with them at, in great detail to see what they can do concretely and in what ways they can or cannot abstract. Goldstein decided at some point that the patient has lost all major abstract capacity, uh, had tried to figure out new ways of constructing abstract capacities for this same patient. And nonetheless, they both insisted that these patients were extraordinarily capable by comparison to what they were supposed to be. In fact, they were capable of doing things that were simply not known. They simply had to be engaged and kept in a kind of environment that allowed them to develop these ways through. So Walter Cannon, the theorist of homeostasis, is the subject of chapter five. And if I've understood correctly, and please please do interject if I am wrong, Cannon's theory of emotions evolved between his work in bodily changes and the wisdom of the body. In the former, emotions are pathological disturbances of the norm, and in the latter, emotions become sort of crucial productive forces in the self-preservation of the organism. But one thing that remained a little hazy and unclear for me uh, was his idea of the margin of error. Um, and so I was wondering if you could clarify this idea in Cannon's work for me. Yes. So... So uh, Cannon is famous for several stages of his work. The first one is the work with x-rays uh, in around 1900, because then you can watch um, physiological systems like the stomach, or, you know, for example, the stomach in operation. And he gradually moves to a point where he thinks, okay, um, how do we study moments where the organism is brought to its limits? And he begins to work on animals, especially at first and becomes key for the theorization of what we call fight or flight. 
what um, what is this extreme situation, and how is the organism emotionally prepared in the in that extreme situation in order to handle an external aggression either by flying or by fleeing the um, either by fighting or by fleeing um, the part that is perhaps more interesting is as you put it what happens after that uh, he gradually moves into thinking between this or in fight or flight this liminal extreme circumstance and wound shock in order to understand how the body itself when it functions under normal conditions always has very small margins of safety or margins of error the idea there is once the body goes into shock lots of different um, indicators are off base and the collapse is partly, let's say, because some of them, though you don't know which ones necessarily, um, are, 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 are moving to aid that collapse. The question instead is, within what limits should the body be in order to operate normally, let's say, or as though it were in health? So he coins homeostasis on the one hand as this idea that the body is self-integrated and quite stable. And then he coins margin of safety to explain that, sure, we, we need to have between this and that, um, you know, let's say, um, relation between the, the water in the body and the salt, for example, uh, salt content of the blood. Um, and it is in, in those new statistical ways of thinking that homeostasis operates and that it tries to understand how the norm works. There's a different way in which this plays in as well. In the 1920s, and this is the subject of the next chapter. In the 1920s, you have these elaborate arguments regarding how these indicators need to be understood and in what ways is the body holding itself together. So you have uh, Lawrence Henderson at Harvard, who's uh, Cannon's colleague, doing basically a form of biochemistry and reducing biology or physiology to a kind of biochemistry in order to explain what, let's say, the matrix is for an organism to be able to survive what the matrix of indicators is. And you have others like uh, John S. Haldane in Edinburgh and later at Oxford insisting that the argument should not be around a biochemical matrix, but around the relations between organs. Cannon's homeostasis basically tries to break the, the gridlock that's come up between these different theorists uh, who fight in quite colorful terms at different uh, moments in time. And the idea of a margin of safety is to suggest that, yes, we do need biochemical markers. This isn't simply a kind of old, holistic, uh, body-wide understanding of how organs relate. But at the same time, we cannot reduce physiology to biochemistry, precisely because at that moment, these instances of catastrophe cannot be theorized. The patient has, you know, for the patient these markers have no meaning. And if we are to think of the patient's suffering or the patient's possibilities, these different or these particular kinds of markers need to be subsumed within an understanding of what the experience of injury is like. That is something that he feels like he can engage with this margin of safety, insofar as it sounds both social and biochemical at the same time. I hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that clarification. So 
going back, I just want to give a quote from the introduction, which really struck me, which is you write, derived at once from the military and medico military situation, the soldier patient was the absolute object of a doctor's care. For perhaps the first time, it was less the soldier's will or speech that attested to the soldier's individuality than the physiological condition. The totality of the interwoven data recovered from the study of system and functional aspects of the broken organism, physiological and medical agency nestled within a bodily non-consciousness, end quote. So it seems to me that this sets up one of the themes that really primarily interests me um, in your work and also you, that you discuss uh, at to some degree in in chapter six, namely that agency was given to internal bodily systems, which accorded the organism, or in this case, the patient, an individuality that operated independently of will, consciousness, or selfhood. And Cannon's work uh, reappears in this context. And I was really intrigued by the place that higher mental functioning takes on in his work. And I wanted to know if you could clarify if he views higher mental functioning as a kind of identity separate from physiological identity, um, or how is it related to physiological identity? And how does consciousness or will fit into this model or not fit into it? And sort of, I guess, in short, um, you know, how would Canon react to a question or a saying like mind over matter, for example? Right. Um, okay. So I would say that the, f- let me try and build to that ending very quickly. Um, the the first thought is that, you know, they're, one of the problems that they're dealing with is precisely that they have prepared themselves over 20 years, uh, canon included, not to trust what a patient says. Uh, that is in part because the patient is understood as not being able to tell you what, you know, the numerical values of, of changes in the body are like, and hence how you can actually experimentally or scientifically set up an, an answer for the patient's condition. So that's one one issue. They've learned not to listen. And then during the war, they largely ignore the voices of many of these patients precisely because what the agent and what the patient can claim for her, for himself. Well, let's remember these are soldiers. And in some ways, this is important for the gendering uh, of the patient after the war. Um, the They ignore the patient's speech in order to bring out this deeper individuality that they think is, is associated with the integrative system or integrative systems of the body itself. The patient, in other words, is understood as being individual, not because not despite the markers that suggest, you know, salt content um, um, and, and so on, blood composition and so on, but precisely because he or she lives within those particular individualized barriers and given their particular history, may or may not react in predictable ways. Now, for someone like Cannon, this becomes important because indeed he does not want to allow for mind over matter. I don't think that Cannon is entirely consistent on Mm -hmm. this matter. There are times when he suggests that there's a kind of heroism involved in a particular decision to fight, for example, over fleeing. And then there are most other times when he says, no, I really don't care. I care what happens for the body itself to be to be in that condition, to be put and to respond to that particular situation. The key part, nonetheless, is the implication that 
our high forms of higher mental functioning are more or less um, coefficient at most and collateral more likely to our bodily functioning. That is to say, we don't experience this under everyday conditions or under normal conditions because we operate, you know, again, within certain margins of safety or we operate, as he thinks, in freedom, in freedom to use those higher mental functions. But in the forms of extremes, he will suggest it's not necessarily, and usually this is the key part, it's not the will that matters, but much more so the, how to put it, the 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 body's own reaction as to the environmental uh, set of objections, because many of these bodily reactions are going to be ones that trouble that same will that tries to have a certain kind of effect or a certain kind of result. So if on the one hand, there's a kind of heroism associated with a will, at the same time, there's a complete undoing of it. Now, this, of course, is not that surprising given psychology around the around World War One. That is to say, the will is one of the main enemies of psychology, if you will, um, a, a science so committed to trying to figure out what lies beneath it, whether in psychoanalysis or in behaviorism or, in, um, you know, in Münsterberg's industrial psychology. But here you have a different kind of argument, which is that in particular, there is so much that the body does itself because of how it functions and integrates itself, that the idea of something like a conscious will is almost irrelevant. Um, mm-hmm. Even at the moments when it comes to the four in extreme situations, it's the body itself that judges and acts much more strongly than, than the will itself. In normal everyday life, that's not an issue. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Thank, thank you for clarifying that for me. Um, I was wondering if you could describe Henry Dale's concept of autopharmacology and what does this idea illuminate for your analysis? I think we, we see in this analysis an early attempt to think about autoimmunity. Autopharmacology is a sort of endpoint of Henry Dale's work. Dale is significant for his work in the discovery of histamine, and histamine plays an important role for him because on the one hand, of course, it occurs naturally in our bodies, yet at the same time, it can build to levels that are toxic for the body itself. And so Dale basically extrapolates a way of thinking from this to suggest how the body can poison itself and hence how we need to look at it not simply as a self-preserving unit, but also as a unit precisely capable of self-destruction, whose elements are capable of of destroying it. This changes a little bit the understanding of what it means to ingest certain pharmaceuticals, for example, uh, or to engage them because it's now suddenly this sort of totalizing matrix of the body and all of its chemicals and its particular response to given situations that has to be engaged in the drugging, if you will, um, of this body, precisely because it, meaning the body, not the drug, uh, precisely because the body operates as a kind of self-drug, which sometimes helps and frequently uh, hurts its own circumstance. In chapter seven, you give a detailed reading of Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle. I was wondering if you could briefly describe for our listeners how Freud's death drive responded to contemporary physiological and neuropsychological turns. This is very difficult for me to do, which is partly why this chapter uh, goes on for quite a while. Um, The argument in this chapter is that conventionally, 
we understand Freud as operating at some distance from physiology, biology, and the other discipline, and the other, let's say, more bodily disciplines, and or body-oriented disciplines. But that the story of the composition of Beyond the Pleasure Principle is actually quite different. Uh, that what is most interesting for me is the way in which Freud first decides that what he has identified as um, self-preservative drives in his early work are first attached to the death drive in its first draft, uh, written in, in 1919, and then greatly changed and, and salvaged from the death drive in 1920. So we zoom into that moment uh, in Freud's writing to say, why is it that at the moment when he becomes more aware of the effects of both traumatic injuries and psychological trauma, Freud also begins to think, how do I differentiate myself from existing other approaches to um, psychological trauma? Let me translate that because that wasn't the best way of putting it. Um, Freud becomes increasingly aware that many of his adherents, of his of his supporters, but also many others, have found ways of dealing with uh, physiological and psychological trauma around uh, the end of the war, and from uh, from his vantage point, he begins to edit the first draft of Beyond the Pleasure Principle in order to try and re-demonstrate the particularity of psychoanalysis. So far, so good. That's largely an institutional and sort of classic move. But then what happens to the death drive is that, in a way, it begins to echo what has already been... Uh, I'm really messing up this uh, the, uh, this particular question. Is that okay if I start again? Yes, of course. Okay, so let me try that again. So, um, around the end of World War I, Freud becomes acutely aware of both how psychological trauma is being handled by other psychiatrists, including some who are attached to psychoanalysis, and in what ways uh, it produces critiques of psychoanalysis on the basis of ideas of self-preservation, and at the same time, he begins to be once again better aware of the physiological transformations that have taken place around World War I, meaning in the science of physiology, the transformations in the science of physiology that have taken place around World War I. And what uh, we try to argue in this chapter is that if you follow his way of writing and then rewriting Beyond the Pleasure Principle in first draft in 1919 and then in second draft in 1920, you can see uh, the death drive being understood as a response to contemporary physiological and psychological concerns, not only for the purposes of distinguishing psychoanalysis as he understands it from other approaches to psychic trauma, but also as a way of moving, let's say, from the psyche back toward the body so that he could explain, he could retain his dualism, his famous, um, his famous dualism, and at the same time, he could re-engage the, shall we say, uh, he could re-engage other psychiatrists and uh, theoreticians of bodily trauma and bodily injury, including ones that tend toward homeostatic ideas 
from the perspective of psychoanalysis itself. So integrationalist physiology had important implications for the doctor-patient relationship during the 1920s and 30s, which historians have commonly identified as a period of dramatic expansion for British and French welfare states, including the standardization of medical and hospital care. What was the crisis of standardization and how did Kurt Goldstein's therapeutic approach depart from the more normative model of the doctor-patient relationship? Right. So one, uh, one way to look at this is that after World War I, one of the key concerns is that all of these conditions that have emerged during the war, particularly conditions like uh, disordered heart, or what is known as soldier's heart, uh, are, are conditions that continue in the long term, that forms of shock have long-term effects. We know this also similarly from psychiatry. But what becomes all the more important or uh, difficult for everybody to handle is precisely that you don't necessarily know what kind of long-term care individuals are going to need. And the inclusion of all these new psychological uh, and especially biological development uh, effectively changes the expectation of what a welfare state is supposed to do and what hospital care is supposed to do. For someone like Goldstein, all the more significant, and Goldstein provides one option, but not necessarily the most effective option here. For someone like Goldstein, the most interesting and most difficult issue here is that if you're caring for an individual patient over an extended period of time, and that patient, for example, is a brain injury patient, then you're in really very messy territory because that patient can change time and again. So on the one hand, so this is, if you will, like as a, a, a patient who would be undergoing psychoanalysis, except that's not the purpose of the treatment. The purpose of the treatment is to handle the various imbalances and attempts at compensation that the patient uh, is undergoing. So suddenly you're dealing with somebody who's going to have a very long, very peculiar course through life and where the physician's priority is to figure out how to aid them, you know, how to abet them, if you will, uh, during this process, which is not one of recuperation, but one of transformation. is only one of many who, are, who come uh, out of the war committed to this particular problem, to long-term care and to looking at life as though it is itself a series uh, of possible moments of changes and compensations where the physician needs to be sometimes in the background helping, sometimes more interventions, but not no longer as a situation where you know someone falls ill and then recovers, falls ill and then recovers, and is at the same level as before. That's something that he and others are very committed to uh, getting rid of. So I don't want to ask you too much of an anachronistic question, but I am interested, nevertheless, to know how do you how do you think some of the central figures in your book would respond to the predictive tendencies of much of personalized medicine today, given their attitude towards the doctor-patient relationship? You know, there's something very different about personalized medicine uh, from, from these developments there. On the one hand, you could say, yes, there is a sense of atten attention to the person. There's a heightened sense that um, you can sort of calculate and predict uh, things or how a patient is going to uh, to function, but personalized medicine is very different uh, in character, and that's the part that we are most interested in 
in a way. Personalized medicine uses, you know, medical genetics, gene therapy, predictive pharmacotherapy to shape treatment and prevention around a particular particularized picture of the patient and that aims to predict and guide the patient's future. That is a very different kind of attention to the one that people, in some respects, it's very similar, and in other respects, it's very different as a kind of attention to the moment of uh, the early post-war period. It's different in the sense that around that after World War One, you don't exactly have these senses of a kind of particularized genetics at this, nor do you have very much interest uh, in that. You see much more of an interest to this body-to-environment relationship and to the way in which the body integrates or interjects within uh, the environment in which it finds itself. But at the same time, you see a sense that this is something to be done in, in catastrophic circumstances. Let me put it, um, let me abbreviate it this way. This is far less about individual care and healing as a kind of social program, as one would see in personalized medicine. There instead, you have a sense that here are the norms, here is the normal, and it's a quite conventional understanding of the normal in most cases. However, extreme circumstances and patients suffering from highly complex uh, conditions need to be treated as individuals and need to give us a sense of individuality for everybody else, a sense of individualized health for everybody else, but not necessarily a sense that all medical treatment needs to be suddenly personalized. The other side of this is that we might criticize personalized medicine for operating under, you know, kind of utopian, uh, utopian neoliberal premises, which are very different from the highly welfare statist oriented uh, priorities of that moment of the of the 1920s. Most of the practitioners that we talk about are much more committed to seeing the state be responsible for mm -hmm. uh, taking care of the different patients that are under its guise, not least because the, the exemplary patients involved here are soldiers who have fought and been injured in the name of that nation state uh, or that state, actually, in most cases. So that is a very different kind of plan than one in which uh, the patient is rendered into an elaborate matrix that predicts her future and that guides both insurance-related questions and the possibilities of what a life would be uh, like, how to shape treatment, care, and uh, a future. Uh, by comparison to the much more, you know, uh, social catastrophe slash welfare statist premises that people look at in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Um, we're we're running out of time, so I just want to ask you one last question uh, before we sign off, and and that is, what was the most surprising or unexpected element that you and Todd discovered while conducting your research? The most surprising element, I think, in the story is quite how much we talk this language of individuality as relating to uh, circumstances of danger. Uh, internal catastrophe and so on, without being aware of the extent to which it's forged around World War One and forged in a science as boring, for the most part, as as physiology is usually uh, considered to be. <laughs> um, that is to say, we were very surprised to see quite how many of 
these developments become political metaphors after World War One. What a key role they play in uh, a rethinking of what things like organism at the political level, political organism, a body politic, uh, uh, or you know even an economic. Um, I should put it in, even an economic crisis uh, would end up being understood as. Uh, we were very surprised to see this language of a self-regulating and collapsing body become part and parcel of political and social languages um, in, 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 in very different political projects after the war. That, I think, was the, the first key part. The extension of this is that, for the, the, that very much of the language that we are discussing of this body that integrates but then collapses in part because of this integration very much of that language was taken out of the realm of physiology and that connection was largely severed that it was reunderstood as a largely liberal language as a kind of politics that we uh, would attribute to politics alone when for the most part it had these sort of very particular and very um, you know not exactly hidden but not all that obvious culturally or politically um, origins as well. So that on the one hand, we could speak of a kind of direct process of metaphorization from um, body politics, from body physiology, onto a kind of broader body politic, where economic crisis, where uh, political integration, political regulation, ideas of organisms would come into play. And at the same time, uh, we could see those bigger languages become important around the economic crisis of 1929, but at the same time uh, be completely forgotten as things that came out of the experience, the physical experience by soldiers uh, of the First World War. Yeah, we'll leave that for the readers to dig into Chapter 8. We didn't get much time to talk about the economic crisis, so thank you for ending on that note. Thank you so much for your time, Stefanos. It has been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your engagement and attention, Maya. So this is Maya Wollner for New Books and Science. Thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>